Thank you very much. It's wonderful to have our uh, children and our youth sing and to lead us in singing before the Lord and to rejoice in His presence through song. Um, sometimes when I speak to people, I, um, you know, it's, it's hard, especially if they haven't grown up in the church or they don't quite know uh, what they think yet about Jesus or uh, His purpose in the world or uh, what difference He might make uh, for uh, our lives today. Um, I, it's just interesting to see and to talk to people and to try to uh, connect with them sometimes when they wonder how in the world something so long ago and so far away could have real meaning in life today. Susan, my wife, had a chance uh, this past week to go with our third grade son on a field trip, and uh, they went to visit the uh, Dipsy Trail and to walk the Dipsy Steps and Uh, Years ago, I thought about the Dipsy Trail and thought I might even try to run that race. (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking, but uh, some bad medication or something was going on. But I have never yet, hopefully yet, stepped foot on the Dipsy Trail. But they went to visit the Dipsy Trail and to see the run, or not the run, but to just watch. And part, the main point of the trip was to gather a little bit more understanding about Mill Valley history. And Mill Valley is rich in its own history. So down in the basement, or the bottom section of the library Mill Valley, they have a room filled with various artifacts. And uh, around the walls, you can see uh, pictures and uh, photographs of uh, turn-of-the-century Mill Valley and when there are hardly any streets or homes or trees and all sorts of things. It's really, really interesting. There's a a light post from uh, old downtown Mill Valley, I believe. And uh, there's even an iron lung left over from when they used to help assist people's breathing, especially uh, uh, due to the results and cause and effect of um, polio. So all sorts of things fill this artifact room in the museum area. And then she came across what was most interesting, to me at least. She comes and she describes this big wooden box. And inside this wooden box there were small drawers that were just wide enough to hold a row of index cards. And it was full of these drawers. And as she explained to our third grade son, she says, Jake, do you know what that is? He says, no. He said, that is a card catalog. (laughs) Do you remember card catalogs at the library? So uh, we spent uh, a few minutes trying to explain to them what a card catalog is. And we said, you know, there was a time not so long ago when you couldn't just uh, get on your computer and dial up and do research for books and things. You actually had to pull out a drawer and thumb through some index cards and find the particular resource that might be helpful to you. But here, a card catalog was sitting among other artifacts. <laughs> kind of useless and pointless for our world today. Well, Sometimes people can think about Jesus in a similar way. So long ago, so far away, what impact does he really have in my modern living today? And that's a great question. And part of the question is, uh, part of the answer at least, is thinking about Easter today, but thinking about a particular aspect of Easter. And it's the idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness is at the very heart of Easter. Easter helps us understand God's great forgiveness. Now, that is not something that's abstract and hard to understand, our need 
and our world's need for forgiveness, right? People hurt us. People mistreat us. People make us mad, don't they? One of my favorite children's series of books is by Mercer Mayer, uh, The Critter Stories, and one of the book titles is I Was So Mad, and it goes on page after page describing the various things that make this little monster child uh, mad. But you know what? It's not just thinking today about what other people do to us, because there are times when other people think the same things about you and about me, right? I can make people mad. I can unintentionally hurt people. And so part of the question for us is what do we do in the midst of broken relationships or uh, relationships that are strained and difficult? Things like when a boss, again, passes over a deserving employee for a promotion. The opportunity is ripe for resentment and anger to develop. Or perhaps a neighbor, someone that you've talked to two or three or four times about a particular concern, yet they still remain unresponsive to your sharing with them. And bitterness can have the opportunity to take root in your life. What about a friend at school who did or said something and you cannot wait to give them a piece of your mind and to put them in their place? How about marriage? You think there's a need for forgiveness in marriage? Yes. <laughs> yes. In fact, one of my favorite jokes when I uh, do a wedding ceremony is uh, describes a, a husband and a wife, and uh, on their uh, married or their wedding day, the wife uh, they move into their house, and uh, the wife takes a shoebox and she puts it high up in an interior closet up on the upper shelf, and she says, "You know, honey, my life, all of my life, is yours. I share everything that I am with you, with the exception of this little box. This is something that's for me." It's something that I, I'm asking you to trust me and that you not touch or open or even ask about this box for our married life. And he said, okay, I think I can do that. So fast forward about 55 years later, uh, they're still married. She's now in ill health and he's arranging the house and going through various aspects of their home life. And he comes across the box and he says, honey, says I, I need to look at the box if that's okay. I've kept my promise all of these years but now it's time. I need to look. And she says, that's okay. So he opens up the box, and inside he sees one uh, lace doily that was obviously hand crocheted, and then a stack of cash of $8,000. He sits down with his wife, and he says, honey, he says, what in the world is this that you've kept uh, squirreled away for all these years? And she said, on my wedding day, my mother told me that every time you did something that made me angry or that required <laughs> forgiveness, she told me that as a way of being a, a cathartic episode would be to go and crochet a, a lace doily. When he looked at the box, there's only one lace doily in the box. And a big grin goes from ear to ear and says, wow, you mean in 55 years? I only done one thing to make you want need to forgive me. And he was just overwhelmed. And he said, well, I, I can see the doily, but what's the money for? And she said, that's the money I earned selling all the other doilies. <laughs> <laughs> what I try to encourage uh, young married couples to know, because it's hard to see that road ahead, but that there will be plenty of opportunities where forgiveness is necessary 
in the midst of a married life. And um, we, we know about forgiveness. We know the need for forgiveness. We, we have been forgiven. Let me, let me ask you a question. If anybody's ever forgiven you of something, raise your hand. Now, if you're thankful for that forgiveness, raise your other hand. Aren't you? Aren't you? You're so glad that people would forgive you. But how do we truly hold on to the forgiveness of God? And how do we regularly live in a way, approach life in a way that we can extend that forgiveness to others? You see, if you remember nothing else, my hope that today is that you'll remember this is that if God's forgiveness comes to us, it then must extend through us. Okay, If God's forgiveness has really come and taken root in your life and heart, then it must flow through your life. In many ways, in many opportunities, Jesus talked about the need for forgiveness. He talked about uh, in Matthew chapter 6, just for an example, when he was, uh, his great Sermon on the Mount, when he was describing prayer, he was offering a model for praying to guide us into structuring prayer. He says, part of that prayer, you know it well probably, forgive us our trespasses, our debts, as we also forgive those who have trespassed against us, right? There's always this sense of a linkage between my forgiving of other people and my understanding and appropriating of God's forgiveness to me. It's almost without exception in the way Jesus taught. We're going to look, though, at Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles. If uh, you want to look in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1066. 1066, but Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. We're going to hear what the Apostle Paul had to say to those believers in Jesus at a church in the Middle East some time ago. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You. To better understand what the, uh, this verse is telling us, because we could just read the verse and walk out today and say, wow, that was a really great, encouraging sentiment. But let's back up a little bit and get a, a broader context for what Paul is trying to teach us here about forgiveness and to remind us of. He says it up in verse 25. He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. He goes on to describe what some of that looks like tangibly. Literally, he's saying it's the Greek word used that's pseudo. We know that word in, in the English language. It's how we get things like pseudoscience, right, or a pseudo-expert. It's, it's something that's fake. It's empty. It's, it projects something of substance, but really, when you look beneath the surface, it really isn't. It's pseudo. It's pretend. What Paul's message is in taking off falsehood is for those who claim to be in Christ and to be in a relationship personally with Jesus, is that we are called to look in the mirror. We are called to look at ourselves and to be careful that over time, somehow, patterns and habits do not begin to creep up and emerge in our lives where we can then be labeled as pseudo-Christians, saying one thing and doing something else. Take off falsehood, we're told, and start 
being like Jesus. And then he gives examples of what falsehood looks like. Falsehood looks like people who can't tell the truth. Falsehood looks like people who, who take action regularly out of anger. Falsehood are those who are consistently careless with their words. But down in verse 31, here's what he says. He says, get rid of this falsehood. He says it like this. He says, get rid of bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Then he says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ Just as in Christ, God forgave you. So how do we do it? Do we just create new patterns and habits in our lives? Do we just roll up our sleeves and create some sort of system that when I get angry, I'm not going to do certain things? That's not what he's talking about here. What Paul is talking about is letting the reality of the living Christ, as he takes root and residence in your life, actually shape who you are. He shapes the way you think, and He shapes the way you feel, and He shapes the actions of your life. He shapes the way you choose to spend your time. He shapes the way you interact in your marriage life. He shapes the way you parent your children. He gives shape then to the way you do your work, and the way you are a supervisor or a boss, and the way you sit under someone else. He shapes that for you. Because all throughout the scripture, we're reminded that when Christ is in us, he is forming us. It's as if God has placed his hands on your soul and he's putting his thumbs and he's pressing and he's giving shape to your life. That's why the Bible uses this word transformation, a change of form. It's a change of shape on the inside of who you are. So that then out of you flows more of the person and the likeness of Jesus. In fact, if we were to back up even farther in this passage, in verse 20, he begins this section by saying this, You, however, did not come to know Christ in a different way. That's when then he launches into the importance of setting aside falsehood, getting rid of these things, So that, because we know Christ, we are able to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You see, when I confess what I have done to distance myself from God, and when I embrace what God has done to draw me closer to Him, that's when I'm learning to know Christ. I'll say it again. When I confess what I have done to distance myself from God, and then I receive what God has done to bring me back to Him in Christ, that's when I know Jesus. That's when I become acquainted with my truest self because we're now relating to the living God in a personal and intensely personal way. Life is transformed. You see, when God's forgiveness comes to you, it works in you and then should work through you into others. That is the calling of the Christian life. In verse 32 again, 
Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. What do we know about Jesus' forgiveness? Pastor Stephen reminded us of John 3.16, that God loved the world and His creation so much that He would send His one and only unique Son into that broken world that we broke. He created perfect, we broke it, yet He still came into this world so that through His life and His death on the cross in your place and mine, and because of His resurrection, we now know that we can be forgiven. It is God's eager choice to forgive you if you trust Him. Do you trust Him today? God's forgiveness is complete even though I don't really deserve it. That is why it's called good news. You see, when God's forgiveness comes to us, it must extend through us. On Good Friday, just a couple of days ago, we, we remembered the death of Jesus. And the death of Jesus is God's way of saying to you, I will forgive you. You can be pardoned. I can unburden your life if you let me work in your life. Doesn't that sound good? To have a life that's unburdened. That's not weighed down with unforgiveness. Sounds good to me. The resurrection of Jesus, Easter, points us to the ongoing friendship that God invites us into. God is saying on Easter morning, if you would accept my forgiveness and come into this ongoing friendship with me, then you can take my yoke upon you, which is easy and my burden is light. And I will then empower you to forgive others. You see, it was only after that very first Easter when Jesus literally came up out of the grave alive again that his disciples were so astonished by that reality and that event that they began to go back and connect the dots of things that Jesus said. The things that he foretold ahead of time. The things they didn't quite understand in the context. But after Easter morning, it all began to make sense. And when Jesus says, I will destroy this temple and rebuild it again in three days, now it made sense. Now it made sense on the third day. It was he who was raised victorious again. They were so radically transformed because of this reality of the cross that placed in them was a beating heart to take the forgiveness that they had received from the living God and to go and spread it throughout the world. And we are the recipients of that message today. That God's forgiveness, if it comes to you, it must be extended through you. I've shared this story before, and many of you probably know it anyway. One of my heroes of the faith is Corey Ten Boom. Uh, someone told me after the first service that he had the opportunity to actually sit uh, when uh, Ms. Tinbaum spoke at a church in San Francisco many years ago. I know you're not supposed to be envious, but I would have loved to have heard Corey Tinbaum share this story. But I, I just want you to hear from her words. She, she and her family lived in Holland during World War II. They owned a, a clock uh, company and repaired watches and clocks and uh, they were also part of a group of people that would hide Jewish people uh, uh, to prevent them from being uh, deported through the Nazis' uh, work there. And uh, they had a, a place in their wall uh, that was a false wall, that behind that wall 
They could hide several uh, Jewish people along the way to keep them safe. And so she has a book called The Hiding Place. If you've never read The Hiding Place, I commend it to you. Uh, you will be wowed by her faith. At least I, I am. And I want you to hear a little of her story because after World War II, she knew that healing was the necessary component and ingredient if Europe and really the world was to find a place forward together. And part of that healing involved forgiveness. I want you to hear what she says. So, well, she would go around the world speaking. She said, I continued to speak partly because the home in Blumendahl ran on contributions, partly because the hunger for Betsy's story seemed to increase with time. I traveled all over Holland to other parts of Europe and to the United States. I want to pause because it's really important that you know that she also, with her sister Betsy, uh, was uh, sent off to Ravensbrück, a, a women's concentration camp in Germany. And her sister died in that place. And uh, just a few days before that camp was liberated by the Allied troops. So that's very important as you uh, hear me reading forward. But the place where the hunger was greatest was Germany. Germany was a land in ruins, cities of ashes and rubble, but more terrifying still, minds and hearts of ashes. Just across the border was to feel the great weight that hung over the land. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly, it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people of Blumendahl the need to forgive, I kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, he gives the love itself. God's forgiveness came to Corey and extended through her. Now, perhaps many of us won't ever have something as intensely scarring as Corey Tinboom went through. 
But we certainly all do have daily and weekly opportunities that need forgiveness, that need my receiving someone's forgiveness of me or my extending my forgiveness towards somebody. You see, when God's forgiveness comes to us, it must extend through us. In Matthew 18, when Peter came to Jesus, he says, Jesus, come on, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times, that's got to be plenty, right? I mean, two or three times, that's more than enough. Come on, let's get real. And Jesus got real, didn't he? That's where he said his famous, no, 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 no. It's not a mathematical equation. If you want to do math like that, let's ratchet it up. Let's do 70 times 7. How's that sound, Peter? I'm paraphrasing now. Wait a minute, Jesus. That's not my point. I'm trying to get out of continuously offering forgiveness. And Jesus says, no, that's just the point. Is that because God in Christ has forgiven us, we also need to learn to live lives of forgiveness to others. And I'm not suggesting it's easy. I'm not suggesting it doesn't come at a cost. But I am suggesting the lack of forgiveness costs so much more. Can you imagine a church whose heart beats when every member that their heartbeat was to know the forgiveness of Christ and to extend that forgiveness to others? Can you imagine how crime in this community would be impacted if there was more forgiveness? Consider how mental health would be affected across the country if there were more forgiveness embraced and offered and shared. Think about the health, physical health benefits of those being unburdened through the forgiveness that Jesus extends and calls us to. Father, we pray this day that you would help us understand and embrace the forgiveness of Jesus. That as we embrace him and his forgiveness more fully today, we pray that as that in his life takes root in us, may it show evidence and flower with our willingness and ability that you give to extend that forgiveness to others. God, I know that this is a deep and personal and painful topic sometimes. But it's a topic because of those reasons that needs to be shared. And we need to know that you can meet us in the most difficult parts of our lives. That you search out the pockets within us that we want to keep covered. And so we pray this day that you would do that. You would search our hearts. And that we would respond to you as you would lead. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.